Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 18. Last week we read up through verse 20 of Revelation 18, so we're kind of continuing uh, our reading from from last week because we want to hear more about what Revelation says of the fall of Babylon the Great, uh, pictured in the previous chapter as the great prostitute seated on the beast, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit more when we get into the sermon. But um, Revelation 18, verse 20, starting at verse 21. I'm actually going to back up a little bit. There's a series of uh, alas statements or woe statements starting in verse 10, and then again in verse 16. Uh, I'm going to read the third one, starting in verse 19, then we'll go on from there. Um, Speaking of the shipmasters and seafaring men, it says, They threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then... A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper, of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Amen. I'd like you to have that, we might call the rest of the story, the end of the story in mind, as we rewind in the history of God's plan, a grand sweeping story of redemption, to an earlier stage foreshadowing 
while we've just heard about the very end of all things. Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses. Dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Amen. You may be seated.
Earlier this year, we went through the book of Revelation in our adult Sunday school. We read a minute ago from chapters 18 and 19 of Revelation. I mentioned that setting up for that is chapter 17. It's a very prominent image of the great prostitute Babylon, this this symbol of uh, this symbolic city slash woman who is um, called Babylon the Great, drunk, it says, with the blood of the martyrs, and riding, if you remember, on the back of the beast, the great servant of the dragon. And you may remember, uh, or using uh, Vern Poitras' book, he, he points out especially the, the, the theme of counterfeiting in the book of Revelation. Now, so, for example, over against the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's the counterfeit trinity, as he calls it, the, the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And then over against the, the lamb and the bride, we see revealed towards the end of the book, Christ and the church, there's the counterfeit union of the beast and the prostitute. And we saw also that the beast and the prostitute represent, as Poitras also mentions, the those two um, complementary strategies that the devil uses in his war against the church of the Lord Jesus. Two um, different ways of getting at us. The beast represents the strategy of force, of uh, state power in particular, persecuting the church with a threat of violence. And then the prostitute, on the other hand, represents the strategy of temptation, the power of um, the decadence of the world alluring the church with the promise of pleasure. There's the carrot and the stick, in other words, coming together in that prominent image of the prostitute Babylon the Great riding on the back of the beast in chapter 17. Now, of course, Revelation ends with Christ's defeat and destruction of both And in chapter 18, as we read last week and this week, you get that repeated lament, alas, alas, for the great city. Well, here in Nahum, chapter 3, you have a piece of the background to all of that. A foreshadowing here in this proclamation against Nineveh, particularly, of the greater judgment to come on the whole world and on every nation in the final victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to divide this chapter into three parts. We're going to use these headings. Uh, Verses 1 through 7, the shame of being exposed. Uh, Second will be the shattering of a rival, verse of a a rival, verses 8 to 13. And then third will be a short-lived show of vanishing strength, verses 14 to 19. So the shame of being exposed, the shattering of a rival, and a short-lived show of vanishing strength. All right, so first the shame of being exposed. Verse 1 opens here, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies 
and plunder. No end to the prey. And what follows is, is a, a picture of just the, the carnage, of the total overthrow of the city of Nineveh that would, in fact, take place, as I mentioned last week, in the year 612 B.C., when Nineveh was, in fact, sacked by the Medes, who were allied with the rising imperial powerhouse of Babylon, about to take a serious place as the the major power in the ancient Near East. And I, I, I think it's probably hard for us to imagine uh, or really to get our minds around this level of horror of the overthrow of a big imperial capital like Nineveh in that time in that region of the world. Uh, but through Nahum's prophecy here, we can at least get a hint, even if we can't take it all in, a hint of just the, the absolute bloodbath it surely would have been Um, As we see his description here of the horsemen charging around everywhere and the swords and spears on every side and these these heaps of corpses, so many dead bodies everywhere that people are tripping over them everywhere you turn. This is a total defeat. And it's not just a total defeat. This city is going to be totally overrun and um, uh, just obliterated with um, this violence of the onslaught of their enemies. And so the question is, why? What's the reason for this? Verse 4 is important in answering this question. Verse 4 explains that this is not merely as maybe the contemporaries of Nineveh would have seen it. This is not merely a change in the fortunes of the world powers of the day. Um, Explainable in terms of, you know, the normal... Things, politics and economics and diplomacy and military technology and all the things that historians usually use to explain why one nation beats up on another nation, why empires rise and fall. It's not just that Assyria had uh, finally reached the end of its decline and now Babylon's on the rise and this is just what happens when one empire replaces another. All things, all those things are true on one level, but it doesn't really. T- they don't really tell us the ultimate why. Why this disastrous fall of Nineveh in this fashion? What what Nahum gives to us here is the perspective from that that God's eye view that we've talked about before. The perspective of the sovereign king over all nations. Because in this very dramatic turn of international events, it is, in fact... The Lord, it is the God of Israel, the creator and king of the whole earth. It is his plan that is in operation here. It is his will that is being done, and it is his judgment that is being carried out. And all of this is taking place on the basis of his law, his sovereign standard of justice and righteousness that applies to all nations everywhere and in every time. So why is Nineveh going to be defeated and destroyed? Well, the reason is that it's all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. He says, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Now, let's think about what this means. So um, this is the meaning of the imagery of the prostitute here is very much like the meaning in Revelation 
Um, it's this imagery of a powerful city uh, being portrayed as a prostitute. Now, this imagery includes, but it's not limited to, uh, sexual immorality. Every pagan nation in world history has always um, majored on sexual immorality. Um, but really, it's, it's bigger than that. Um, this represents the, the whole big picture of all of Nineveh's uh, wealth and luxury and economic um, apparent prosperity, but, but verging into to decadence, um, built on the, the backs of the plunder of all the nations that they've conquered. And importantly, all of that wealth and, and power of, of, of every kind being brought to bear in the very extravagant and blatant worship of idols, as well as the unfettered pursuit of all kinds of lawless living. See, Nineveh has not only been a world conquering city, but as the great imperial city of its day, it has also been a world leader, a trendsetter, you could say, a cultural leader, spreading along with its political power also its pagan religion and its pagan morality. As Nineveh goes, so goes the ancient world under its sway. And so that means that Nineveh is guilty not only because of its own godless rebellion against the Lord, but because of the way it has spread this godlessness systematically throughout the world around it. So it was not only the stick, which was a very big stick of Assyrian military power that was so bad for the world of its day, but it was also the carrot of Assyrian wealth and idolatry and sensuality. It's the old, old story. It's true of so many of the empires down through the centuries. <laughs> There's a remarkable similarity in the Lord's prophecies. Uh, the, 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 the prophets uh, uh, throughout history, their proclamations of, of judgment for these exact same themes that keep coming up because the, the names of the empires change, the kings change, the ethnicities who, are, who have risen to power change, and yet the spirit of the age that... The, the, in fact, the supernatural uh, demonic power behind these things remains the same down through history, even as the human faces portraying it come and go. So what is God going to do in response to this great widespread evil in Nineveh and its empire? Well, the obvious thing is that Nineveh is going to get defeated. Nineveh is going to get destroyed. But that's not all. It's not even the most important thing in this chapter. The central image for this chapter is that Nineveh is not just going to be destroyed, they're going to be humiliated. They're going to be put to open shame. The Lord is going to make of Nineveh a spectacle. A spectacle, he says. And the purpose for this is so that it will be unmistakable to the whole world that this bloody city and all of its rebellion against God, and all of its disastrous impact on the nations of the world has been utterly disgraced. Not just punished, not just destroyed, but disgraced. Shown for what it really is in all of its ugliness and shame. 
I, just, I want to acknowledge that if, if you're taken aback by the graphic imagery of verses 5 and 6, I have very great sympathy with you. And if you are taken aback, if you find it shocking, um, well, the first thing I'd say is that it means you're reading it right. Because that's the way it's intended. It is shocking. It is graphic for a reason. I know it's a little uncomfortable to dwell on these verses, but I am going to keep us here for just a minute because I want you to think back to Genesis chapter 3 and the very first sin. Very first sin. What was the very first consequence of the very first sin? The very first way that you find out there, oh no, something has gone tragically wrong with this good world that God made. When Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree, instantly it says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They tried to hide it, right? They, They sewed the fig leaves together and so on. So the first impact of the first sin had to do, at first, not with the, so much with the guilt of it, but with the shame of it. The shame of it. The humiliation of being exposed. That theme continues, of course, when God comes to the garden to confront Adam, and Adam responds how? He responds by hiding from the Lord. I think in general, um, I think that we're more comfortable uh, talking about the guilt of sin than we are talking about the shame of sin. We experience both, and so it doesn't really do us any good to avoid thinking about the shamefulness of sin because we have to deal with it somehow. Ignoring it doesn't make it go away. The Bible talks a lot about both guilt and shame of sin. And in this very shocking imagery here in Nahum of, of this symbolic exposure of the prostitute Nineveh, um, we're, we're getting a perspective that we might otherwise not really want to think about on what sin is really like and what sin really deserves. Sin brings on us not just guilt, but also shame. And so when we consider our sin, one of, these thing, one of the things this passage does is it, it, it teaches us to recoil from it. This is a passage that's helping to teach us that, that hatred of sin, that, that visceral uh, reaction to rejection, to turning away, from, recoiling from sin that the Holy Spirit is seeking to work in our hearts to see sin as it really is, to come face to face with reality. If we don't learn to see our sin as that serious and that shameful, or if we refuse to admit it, you know, we, we say things, well, there's no way I'm really that bad. You know? Or, or may, maybe you know, some people would come to a passage like this and say, well, there's no way that's the way that God would treat sin. I I don't want to believe in that kind of God. Well, all I can say is that something 
crucial will be lost then in our understanding of what it really means that we have been clothed, that we have been covered by the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. It is when you descend this low, learning to estimate your sin, to see it as God sees it and the true shamefulness of it, that you come to appreciate much greater depth and wonder what it is that Jesus has given you in covering you with the robes of his righteousness. Remember the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus confronts them. He says, listen, you say, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing, Jesus says, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's our natural state. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, as the hymn says. And so Jesus responds to them. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. The point is, yes, sin really is this shameful. But you see, God's grace, the healing, the covering, the wholeness that he brings through Christ is really that good. And as you continue to wrestle with this section of this passage, don't forget one more thing. Don't forget what Jesus himself, God himself come in the flesh, Lord Jesus Christ did and endured himself in order to give you that robe of righteousness. Remember that Jesus endured not just the condemnation that your sin deserved because of your guilt, Jesus endured also for you the uncovering, the exposure, the shame of your sin as he was not only beaten, but also stripped ahead of his crucifixion. The ultimately clean and honorable one, Lord Jesus, lowering himself to be put to shame in that ultimate way for you. And there's one more piece of this. Um, something that the people who humiliated Christ in that way on the cross did not know and could not control, something that they did not intend even in that moment on the cross. Colossians 2 says this, that God was in the act of disarming our spiritual enemies and he says, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in the death of Jesus on the cross. It was through the cross through the humiliation of Christ, that God ultimately was putting to open shame all of the enemies of his kingdom and his people. So this defeat and humiliation of Nineveh, then, is a foreshadowing, we should understand, of that future victory of Jesus. So that, as we've seen before, even in this very bad news, this extraordinarily, radically bad news for Nineveh, there is contained, once again, a very important aspect of the good news for the people of God. Okay, so let's try to understand what Nahum does next here as he uh, goes on to compare Nineveh 
with another city, a city that the Assyrians themselves had actually defeated previously earlier in the same century. 663 BC is the date of the the sack of Thebes, major city in Egypt, uh, by Assyria. So Nahum is addressing uh, kind of a potential objection here. So the Ninevites, hypothetically, you know, could hear this prophecy and think, no way, have you seen our military defenses? Have you seen our army? Have you seen our city walls? Have you seen our list of allies that are going to come to our defense? And Nahum says, the city of Thebes was exactly the same way. They had great natural defenses. They had great allies. But look what you did to them. Why do you think you're so different? Nahum's basically saying, look, Nineveh is not, it's not special. You're not special. You're not exceptional. You're just another ancient city. And the bigger they are, frankly, the harder they fall under the judgment of the Lord. I think uh, there may be a little bit of an irony here when you compare Nahum's message about Thebes with what, um, back in 2 Kings 18, when the Assyrian general comes and they've laid siege to Jerusalem and um, he's shouting up to the people on the walls, have any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? He's basically saying to the people of Jerusalem, why do you think you're so special? If their gods didn't save them, then what makes you think that your God is going to save you? Of course, Israel's God does save them. Israel, uh, Jerusalem is different. Jerusalem is exceptional in that sense. But it's almost like here, Nahum is, is turning that argument back around against the Assyrians. If a city like Thebes could be defeated and destroyed, after all, you did it yourself. What makes you think that you won't be? Nam says, all those fortresses that you're counting on, they're just going to be like fig trees. He said, they're ripe for the picking. And all the invading army is going to have to do is just give them a shake. And all the figs are going to fall off the trees. They're more or less going to eat you for breakfast. That's the message here. Last time we talked about uh, the way God describes the destruction of Nineveh, in a sense, it's just really Nineveh getting a taste of its own medicine. What Nineveh has been dishing out to the ancient Near Eastern world, they now are going to be hit with that same violence and terror um, that they've spent so many years wreaking on all their neighbors, um, including Israel and Judah, the covenant people. Um, now, as for Nineveh's military power, you might think, well, that's got to count for something. I mean, the Assyrian Empire is not just going to roll over and uh, let this happen, right? They're going to resist. And in fact, starting in verse 14, that's the idea. It's almost like the Lord is, is egging them on. Go ahead, draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Reinforce the defenses with, with clay and mortar and brick. Uh, but, but listen, it's not going to change the outcome, God is saying. Um, there's an interesting uh, kind of inversion of imagery in this section when Nahum starts talking about locusts. When you think about locusts and what, how, where, how you've read about them in the Bible, think about what sorts of things come to mind. This is something Trimper Longman points out in his commentary. That there are other places in the Bible where a locust swarm is a picture, it's a metaphor for a vast and powerful army, right? Think about especially the book of, of uh, Joel. 
Um, and if you know anything about locust swarms, you know that they move in these huge numbers, right? These vast clouds of locusts, and they'll fly into an area, and they'll eat up all the green vegetation in a very short space of time, and then... Um, but there's something else about locusts. For all of that amazing, destructive power, when they fly in, they can fly away just as quickly as they came. Multiply yourselves like the locust, verse 15 says. And I'm sure for many countries, in Assyria's heyday, the approach of the Assyrian army felt like a swarm of locusts sweeping in and devouring everything in their path. But now it's going to happen, verse 16. The locust spreads its wings, flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Suddenly that doesn't sound so flattering anymore, does it? Your scribes, like clouds of locusts, sitting on the fences in a day of cold, and when the sun rises, you hear those wings all buzzing as the cloud just evaporates. It's gone. Assyria's power is ephemeral. It's like trying to hold on to a cloud. It's just going to slip right through their fingers. What they used to count on as so powerful and reliable, it's just going to melt away. It's going to evaporate. It's going to, be, it's going to disappear right before their eyes. Verse 18 describes a failure of leadership. Your shepherds are asleep. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. Uh, the, 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 the fabric of Assyrian society is coming undone. Their leaders just can't keep it together. They can try, but the best that they're going to be able to manage is what we've called for this third point, that short-lived show of vanishing strength. You know, in many places in the Bible where there's an extended passage of of judgment like this, we get used to finding somewhere along the way a little bit of relief usually, right? Some some glimmer of hope, some kind of promise of restoration and, and forgiveness. Nahum doesn't end that way, does it? Nahum has a an unremittingly sad ending for Nineveh. It's really, it's really pretty chilling, the way this book ends. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Not only is Nineveh going to be destroyed and wiped off the face of the world stage, but no one is going to be sad about it. No one is going to miss them when they're gone. Something we need to remember at this point. I mentioned this when we looked at chapter 1. It's important that we remember who the audience is here. Who is Nahum written for? Not who is it written about. It's obviously written about Nineveh, but who is it written for? Remember that unlike Jonah, whose mission was to go to Nineveh to preach to the people of Nineveh and their king, Nahum's prophecy is intended not for Nineveh, it's intended for Judah. You actually said that about, about the book of Jonah too, right? The book of Jonah is about Jonah going to Nineveh, but the book of Jonah itself is written to Israel. Um, and so similarly here, the book of Nineveh it rhetorically is addressed to Nineveh as sort of a literary device, but the real audience who's supposed to be reading this and hearing this and taking it to heart, the real audience is the people of God. It's the people of Judah. 
And so it's important to remember that this bad news for Nineveh is recorded in this book for Judah as good news for the people of God. God's people who have repeatedly and for decades been the objects, the victims of the unceasing evil of the Assyrian Empire. What God is doing in this book is he is reassuring reassuring them that empire's days are numbered. Listen, for all that you have suffered at the hands of the Assyrians in their capital city, God has not fallen asleep at the wheel. He sees, he has taken note of their wickedness, of their atrocities, of their idolatry, of their decadence, of their lawlessness. He is paying attention and he is going to act. Nineveh will surely fall And why is that ultimately? It is because the God of Israel is the king and the judge of all the world and of all the nations in it. And so in that sense, this message about Nineveh is another step along the way, isn't it? In God's continuing revelation of his grand plan, not just for this particular ancient Near Eastern imperial capital city in the the global scene of the ancient Near East in the 7th century B.C. It's about so much more than that. This is about God's plan for all of history, where the whole world is going. This chapter is a warning, and this book is a warning to all nations, to every nation of every time and place. Like we said in week one, it includes the United States of America, by the way, that all peoples and countries are subject to the reign of God and to the wrath of God if they determine to live out their time on the world stage in rebellion against him. Even as it is a warning to the nations of the world then, it is also something else. It is also an assurance to the people of God of every time and place again. That God is on his throne. That God is the ultimate victor over both his people's enemies of every kind. Whether we're talking about the the carrot or the stick of the world's threats against the church. The allure of the prostitute. The terror of the beast. The Lord is sovereign over both. And the end of Nahum foreshadows, doesn't it? The end of of the whole Bible and the end of all history. Woe to the bloody city, to this particular bloody city, yes. But in the end, alas for the great city. Babylon, wherever it's found, in all its forms, whether that's Babylon itself, whether it's Nineveh before it, whether it's Rome after it, whether it's New York or L.A. or D.C. or Beijing or Moscow or Paris or State College, for that matter, You can find Babylon everywhere you look. You can find the prostitute everywhere you look in the world, wherever people gather in rebellion and rejection of the Lord. That city, that power, that temptation, that threat to the people of God is everywhere, and it is always arrayed against God and his plan and his people. But listen, the message of Nineveh is that it will not always be around. Its days are numbered. And so the impact for the people of God is we've got to remember not to be so attracted by the deadly charms, the 
deadly charms of that world system that seek to deceive us and allure us and draw us in time after time after time in every generation. We've also got to remember not to be afraid of its deadly power threatening us. It is but a short-lived show of vanishing strength that is going to give way completely in the end to the overwhelming victory of the Son of God. So instead of being allured, instead of being afraid, our task instead is to orient ourselves in faith towards the Lord who sits enthroned above Nineveh, above every other earthly city, and nation, and to commit ourselves then in loyalty to him, to his kingdom, and to his king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to admit, frankly, that apart from Christ, we would by right simply be swept away in the same judgment that is coming against all of the world's power and pleasure. All that we've deserved for ourselves is that place of shame and exposure in our sin. Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to conceal our disgrace and humiliation from the eyes of a holy God. But praise be to God who has not treated us the way that we deserve. What we deserve is pictured here for us in Nahum chapter 3. But instead, what has Jesus done? He has taken that shame upon himself on the cross. He has covered us with the righteousness that he earned through his perfect life. God has delivered us from this domain of darkness. He's wrenched us out of it and he's transferred us instead to the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. His honor covering all of our shame. His grace so much greater than all of our sin. So as we'll sing in a moment, Our prayer should be, Thy pains, not mine, O Christ, upon the shameful tree have paid the law's full price and purchased peace for me. And Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness save that which is of Thee. So to whom save Thee, who canst alone for sin atone? Lord, shall I flee? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Teach us, we pray, to take to heart the warnings and the promises of the book of Nahum. To live in light of the reality of who you are as the king over all the nations. To resist the allure, have courage in face of the threats of a world arrayed against you, knowing that its power is limited and vanishing and will one day give way entirely to the perfectly revealed reign of the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. We look forward to that day. We'll be able to sing with all of the saints, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. In Jesus' name, amen.